In my bunker today, I have John Malafronte. He's an Irish-Italian second-generation immigrant to the U.S., uh, born in the in I-56, um, to a, a Catholic family, raised in a Catholic way, uh, found out as a teenager that he, he was gay, told me how it was to come out, and the abuse that he suffered from his family, which he eventually cut all ties to. Um, he told me how he sees the U.S. Uh, and why he moved away um, and uh, how he got settled into Europe. He now lives in Prague where he, he runs theater. Um, he always liked theater. That was his escape. And uh, he puts classic plays on stage in Prague in English, um, carving out a niche for himself. Um, yeah, he had a lot to say. Um, and... Um, talked about how the times have changed and the politics and the division between people and Democrats and Republicans and so on. And he, yeah, I, I don't think that he kind of fits the mold that you would think. So a lot of, lot of, lot of his opinions you would expect to come from a, um, I don't know, a straight white guy, which is, yeah, but he's not a straight white guy. Um, Interesting talk. This is going to be in two parts. So on the first part, we talk more about his life in the U.S. and and and, and relocating here, and, and then we get a little bit into uh, yeah, social media and and uh, expectations to life and stuff like that. And on the second part, we talk more about like global warming, COVID response, um, uh, media censorship, um, yeah, and where it all will go and where it will end. Um, interesting talk. Um, most people will probably called John a uh, conspiracy theorist or Tin Hatter and he doesn't really mind to be called that because he doesn't feel that he has anything to lose. Which must be a very comfortable position, position to speak from because um, yeah, a lot of people are afraid of saying what they think because of what they could lose from saying it. Uh, the sponsors, that's the Oat Bar Cypher Tower 21 in Shishkov. You can get it delivered home on Volt or Bolt. Or you can drop by and pick up something, some great goodies. Um, oatmeal, skiers, um, healthy sweets, good coffee, great service. Um, yeah, my favorite place, obviously. And Alfred Jobs, alfred.cz, um, Alfred Jobs in the App Store, you can find and apply for jobs with one click, and you're anonymous, so you can search while you're still working for that previous job that you learned to hate. Check it out, guys. Okay, so welcome, John Malafronte. How are you? I'm very good today. How are you? I'm very good. Um, yeah, you're you're an actor. We were just talking about it now before I hit record that you you done some t- you did some t- American TV series. Yes, I did. Uh, t- I did Twelve Monkeys, and then uh, I was in um, um, not Deliverance. Um, Damn, I forgot. <laughs> it's been as it's been five years since I've done any uh, television okay. or film roles. But Twelve Monkeys was big, uh, right? Twelve Monkeys was very popular. Yeah, yeah. I had a I had a very fun day of filming on that uh, with uh-huh. the uh, the lead actors. Okay, uh, who were super kind to me. Yeah, and even invented a, a a new scene for me to do and told the director, uh, "You have to film more of this guy. He's very funny." So they gave me a whole extra bit to do, which ended up on the cutting room floor. Yeah, as so often happens. Um, 
with uh, uh, TV and films. You know, you tell all your friends, oh, you know, watch episode 10 of 12 Monkeys, I'm on it, you know, and then they watch it and, they, and you're, you're not gone. You're gone completely. Your name, maybe your name is in the credits, but uh, you're nowhere to be found. It, it happens very often here in Prague to Prague actors. Yeah, I, I, I have, I've been on a set once myself in a, in a TV commercial and it was, a, it was a very long day for very few seconds. Exactly, exactly, yeah. But you're a th- you're you're mainly in theater, right? Oh yes, theater is my true passion. Yeah, yeah. As an actor or, or director, or? as an actor, as a director, as a sound designer, as an and as a graphic designer. Mm-hmm. I started out mostly as an actor with the directing on the side, and over the years I have uh, flipped that around, and now I am mainly a director, and I occasionally act in other people's plays. Mm. And you're doing those classics like Hamlet and like like. When I was reading some I, of the stuff, I played Hamlet actually. Yeah. <laughs> that was the that was the high point of my uh, career in New York before I uh, I, I left for Boston uh, to spend my adult career in, in psychology. Uh-huh. I got to play Hamlet off Broadway. It was pretty damn exciting. Really? <laughs> yeah. Oh, that's cool. Yeah. And that, yeah. So anyway, yeah, yeah. So the reason why you're here is that um, we are in a mu- uh, well, we are both members of the same Facebook group, and and I mm-hmm. saw you comment on a few things there, and I found that. Um, well, some of the stuff that you were saying was were things about like how we're handling COVID and 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 and, and the yeah the big business and then all that and, and right. the, the brainwash and all that stuff that has been going on, and it was refreshing because overall here in Prague where we are recording and we both live, um, um, it's been very much at least what we see in in our in the languages that we read. Yes, I believe you don't read Czech, right? I don't. Oh. Neither do I. But Google Translate helps sometimes. But it's very kind of a one-way narrative. Uh, and anyone who has a different opinion is very much kind of, um, yeah, people don't like that when somebody asks difficult questions or comments differently. And you do. Yeah, me too, me too. But, uh, you know, being here in Prague, you know, social media is one kind of uh, interaction and one kind of censorship and source of division. Mm. Daily life here in Prague is very different than that. Mm. Um, you know, America and the UK, I think, are more in line with uh, the metaverse of Facebook and Instagram and all the other garbage. Mm. But, you know, just living day to day here in a Prague neighborhood, you know, meeting Czech people, meeting other people from every kind of culture you can imagine that lives mm. here, expats, um, the discourse is very different. Yeah. This is one of the last places of civility yeah. <laughs> that I know of. Yeah, I, I I agree with you actually, and and what I what I f- what I find interesting in the, this group that we are both members of, it's a, a expat group where where primarily foreigners are communicating, and I feel that the stuff that you see there is not something that you kind of meet in everyday life here. You know, right. I've always said that Czech Republic is one thing; it's rules, mm-hmm. and then there is reality, and those are two very different things. Exactly, and that's one of the things that I love about living here. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> yeah, but uh, anyway. Um, so you're you're in theater. You're doing theater now, right? I am, as we speak. Yeah, <laughs> I have rehearsal tomorrow night. Okay, and uh, my play opens in two weeks. Uh huh. How has that been during COVID and all that stuff? It uh, it has been very difficult. I had to put my plans on hold. I had been wanting to start my own theater company um, for about five years now. Um, the expat theater community here is a bit disorganized um it's uh i'm gonna get in trouble here it's uh more 
Uh, it's more like we're five minutes in, and you're already uh, in trouble. Already, I'm in trouble. It's it, mm. it, it, expat theater here is really more like community theater was mm-hmm. in America. You know, it's uh, friends and neighbors getting together to put on a show. Mm-hmm. You know, it, it it does not reach a level of professionalism that I grew up with as a New Yorker. Mm. Um, you know, growing up uh, seeing Broadway plays on a regular basis, um, I have a, a different idea of what's professional. Mm-hmm. So I w- I wanted to set a new standard for what uh, can be done here, and mm-hmm. uh, that's my goal. And. I couldn't get to get it started when I wanted to because of COVID, but I worked around it by doing a live play over the summer. I did uh, the Noel Coward comedy, Blood Spirit, which adapted itself very well to the Zoom format, uh-huh. um, which is not terribly theater friendly, mm-hmm. uh, Zoom. But we managed to find a way to work with the technology so that it really, our, our audiences for our live broadcasts in August, and we brought it back uh, in October, the feedback we got most was, wow, it felt like I was watching a real play. I uh-huh. just I didn't think that it could be that way. I thought I was just going to watch like a Zoom classroom kind of thing. But uh-huh. it felt real, you know? But for you, uh, it must be different, though, because, I mean, as a director, doing it online yes. isn't... It was different, but it was better than I thought it would be. Yeah. Uh, even though we were all spread out, uh, two, of my, two of my cast members were in the UK mm. um, rehearsing with us. Um, it very much felt like a community. It felt like by the end of the rehearsal period that we had come together and formed a, a very tight, very positive group. And when it was all over, we were all as sad as we would be if we had just closed a live production, mm. which is why we brought it back again in October, because we loved it so damn much and we got such great feedback, we decided to do it again live. Mm. So that tided me over until now, when I'm finally able to get something up on stage live, mm. um, and that's what I'm getting ready to do now. Uh, and what's if, that play? What what is what is going live I, now? I am I am doing uh, uh, the Oscar Wilde play, The Importance of Being Earnest. Yeah, um, and t- ticket sales are going really well. Quite by accident, I found out by um, the woman who was doing our Czech translation. We are we will have Czech surtitles at the theater, uh, so Czech audiences can come and enjoy the play. But she told me that the importance of being earnest is part of the school curriculum here. Ah, so people like yes. To, yeah, yeah. So I have so far five school groups coming to see the play. That's great. Yeah, because they're learning it in school. That's, this could be. I a have no idea. Yeah, yeah, this I could have be no idea. <laughs> you need to go into the schools. Exactly. And look at what it, they're that's reading. what I said to a friend the other day. I want. I want. I want a copy of the curriculum for mm. uh, drama here in the Czech Republic, <laughs> and those are the plays I want to. I want to direct because <laughs> mm. it's a huge audience out there for it. So yeah, I picked I picked the right show, and I also went with a comedy because uh, we're coming out of this insane lockdown, and I know for myself if I want to go back and be in a live theater, I want to I want to hear music, I want to laugh, I don't want to cry, I don't want to no. see it's been King enough. Lear, I don't want to see Macbeth, I yeah, you know, it's enough. It's time for t- time to laugh, time to get people together, and be joyful. Yeah. Uh, Maybe I'll come and check it out. It would be nice to go and laugh somewhere. <laughs> I, I, I've been going to some comedy shows, though, and that, that's been a kind of a, a light in the dark sometimes. Um, but you're from New York. Yes, I am. Uh, born in the 60s or 50s. I was born in 1956 uh-huh. in, in the Bronx. Okay. I'm a Bronx boy. Um, in the neighborhood that is now considered part of the South Bronx, which is mm-hmm. considered one of the most dangerous neighborhoods in New York. Uh-huh. But when I was a kid, it 
still paradise. Uh-huh. Yeah. It wasn't dangerous back then. Not at all. And why is it dangerous now? What has happened there? I mean, what, what, what's changed? Um, what has changed is um, as crime started to spike everywhere in New York, I think that it hit my particular neighborhood the worst because of the shift in demographics. When, mm -hmm. I, when I grew up, it was a mix of everyone. I went to school. I'm Irish and Italian. I went to school with kids who were, who were Jewish, who were German, who were black, who were Chinese, who were Mexican, everyone. Mm. Um, so when I was a young student, there was no notion, there was no talk of racism mm. everywhere, mm. critical race theory. Mm. It just wasn't part of our lives. We didn't, we didn't experience, we, you know, we grew up loving all of our neighbors. Mm. You know, an asshole was an asshole, and a friend was a friend. You got it, and you didn't care about color or race or That's anything. Right. That's right. That's mm. right. Um, it was the the end of a golden age in New York. I was I feel very lucky to have grown up there when I did mm. um, during the uh, th during the sixties, mostly um, mm. my late childhood and early adolescence. New York was a safe place. It was beautiful. It was clean. Mm. I mean, people in my neighborhood in the Bronx, didn't even lock their doors. That's how safe it was. Mm -hmm. No one worried about crime. Mm. I used to go down into Manhattan with my school chums when I was eight years old, riding on the subway with just my friends. You know, now- uh, That would be a police case. It, exactly, it would be, it would be. Yeah. You would be hauled into social services for letting your kid ride on a, a subway at eight years old. Yeah. But it was perfectly normal when I grew up. Mm -hmm. No, there was no fear of anything. Mm -hmm. But you, so you say like uh, your parents are Irish and Italian, and I mean, the, you must be a unicorn because the Irish hated the Italian, the Italian they did. hated the Irish. Oh, they very much did at the time that uh, my parents got together. They, they had to elope when they were 19 years old. What does that mean? That means running away to get uh -huh. married because uh -huh. their parents forbid it. My mother could not bring my father home to her Irish family, and my father could not bring my mother home to his Italian family. Uh -huh. Absolutely forbidden. They had no choice but to, they ran away upstate New York somewhere and uh, and got married and then came back. And then and the families accepted them in the end, I guess. Yes, they accepted them in the end. Yeah. Yeah, once it was legal, you know, Catholics, you know, well, if you're legally married, we're, we're, I guess we're stuck with you now. Yeah, and, and, and that's the thing. And then you get a double portion of Catholicism. You get the Italian Catholicism and the Irish Catholicism. Oh, you get the best of both. Yeah. yeah. Is, mm -hmm. the, is there a best of both in this? No. No. <laughs> no. Uh, they both, they, they, they're, they're both crazy Catholics in different, in different ways. Mm. Um, I guess uh, Italian Catholics are um, big into uh, matriarchy. You know, if you go to Italy... You know, all the Italian boys are still living with their mamas, mm. um, and Ireland maybe is a little bit the other the other way around. Mm. Um, it's I think it's more paternalistic in uh, Irish culture. Uh huh. Um, but uh, they both had specialties in guilt, mm. plenty to dish out on both sides. Yeah. <laughs> they did, but but how how was it with the the forgiveness and the and the confessions and that stuff? I mean, did you? Oh, oh, this traditional. Oh yes, I went to uh, I went to a Catholic 
grammar school. Mm. I went to Catholic high school. Uh-huh. I even went to a Catholic university. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Long after I had really stopped considering myself a Catholic. But uh, yeah, I was in all the way. Catholic mm-hmm. school. Yeah. And what kind of kid were you? Were you, do you have siblings or, or? I have an older brother and sister. Uh-huh. Much older, actually. Okay. And were you a good kid or? or? I was a very good kid. Um, I didn't give anybody any trouble, but I got a whole lot of trouble in return. Mm. How? Well, I was, uh, I was uh, abused at home by my crazy parents, and I was abused at school because I was, uh, I was scrawny, I was awkward, I couldn't play sports, and uh, I got beat up, pushed around, you know? Mm. It was a brutal childhood. You know, mm. I didn't feel safe in my own skin until I went to college. Uh-huh, that's like eight, 18, 19. 18 years old, yeah. But what kind of, like, when you say abuse at home from your parents, like physical yes. abuse or? Yes, uh, physical, um, psychological, and even sexual abuse. Uh-huh. Yes. And how, and, and what, how did that, I mean, like, from very young age or? or? From a, a, a very young age, from as as, uh, as early as I can remember. Mm-hmm. Um, I went through my adulthood uh, burying most of this. It wasn't until both my parents were dead that everything came roaring back out of the past. Uh-huh. And it took about five years of therapy to get through it all and mm-hmm. to get a grip on it, to let go of it. Um, but I have. Mm. I have. But how was it back then? I mean, because you're talking about like, I don't know, like uh, 60s, 70s. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You don't, or like, I don't know. I, you kind of have a, we have a feeling that these kind of things are more out in the open now. And, oh. and there are more, yes, yes. let's say, things that you can do about it. Or the school is maybe more attentive or something. Oh, it, it's, com- it's completely turned on its head now. Mm-hmm. I mean, if you're a gay kid in, you know, eight years old and you're think that you're gay. Mm. I don't think anybody really knows at that age. Um, you know, you're embraced. You're the class hero. Mm. <laughs> you know, you're the, you're the protected class now. Mm. You're not the one getting beat up. Uh, it's, 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 it's wild to see mm. what the attitude is now uh, around sexuality and kids. It's insane, in my opinion. Mm. Um, but it has completely swung the other way from the repressive atmosphere that I grew up with. So no one knew that there was anything wrong no. when you were going through this? No, I hid it from everyone. I would not, I wouldn't cry. Uh, no matter how badly I got beat up, I would not cry. I, I stood my ground um, and I would not let my family see how much they hurt me. I just uh, buried it all mm-hmm. inside. But um, did you know it was wrong? Or do you know what I mean? Because yes. sometimes when you're too, when you're young, you kind of think, okay, this must be going on in every home. Um, I did think that it, that it was going on in every home, and uh, because um, as I came to discover over my years working in psychology, um, abuse is almost genetically passed down through generations, and I believe now that my parents were abused by their parents. Mm -hmm. My aunts and uncles were abused, and it got passed down to many of my cousins. It was rampant, Mm. and it continued 
after me, which is why I have no contact with my family now, um, because uh, I have a niece who abuses her daughters. So you know, it it, it has it 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 continues. Mm. It's the 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 march of abuse um, into hell, destroying lives, um, and I couldn't be a silent witness of it. I tried to do my part to try to bring it out into the open to be the one that broke the chain, but I couldn't, mm. so I left. And uh, what was your escape then, like when, as a kid? My escape was, uh, was, uh, was two, well, two things. I, I, um, I loved and I still love playing board games. I have a huge collection of board games. And uh, I was the kid that always had the best, the coolest games on the block, so that was, one way that I was able to have friends because they always wanted to come over and play my games. Um, that was a that was a, a, a salvation. But wasn't it um, hard to bring kids home when when your home is not safe for you? Do you know what I mean? Like it was, mm. and I would often go to their homes instead, mm. um, or I would just arrange for it to happen when my parents were not home. Yeah, yeah. Um, because this is what you sometimes hear from. From children that, or people that have gone through something like this, that they actually never want to bring anyone home. I don't know if there's right. an abusive or an alcoholic in the home or something. They are so yeah. ashamed. Yeah. Well, I mean, it was nothing overt. I mean, no one could have walked into my house and watched my family in action, and ever dreamed of what was going on behind closed doors. Mm -hmm. uh, they hid it very, very well. And why? Why do you think they picked on you, or what? What was wrong with you? Well, I. There's a tremendous age difference between uh, my myself and my brother and sister. Um, I think that I was an accident. Uh, I was not planned. In fact, my mother was told that she couldn't have any more children. And at 40 years old, along I came, and they thought they were all done. My brother and sister were getting ready to go off and get married and start their own families. And I arrived, you know, and uh, they had to start. They thought they were finished, and uh, they weren't. They had to deal with me. Mm. Um, so I think that was part of it. Um, and I wasn't, I just didn't fit the mold of what a late fifties, early sixties kid did. I didn't go out and, and, uh, play basketball and baseball stuff. Or, yeah. didn't, I sucked at it and I wasn't interested in it. I wanted mm. to play games. Mm. I wanted to play records, you know, <laughs> I wanted to rock and roll. Mm. Um, I just didn't fit no matter how hard I tried. But is that because you're gay? Do you think? Oh yeah, a big part of it was because I was gay. For and sure. you, you were realizing that already at an uh, early age. Um, yes and no, mm. um, which I think was unique to growing up gay during that time period. I knew deep inside that I was, but yet I dated girls right through college. I dated girls until I was twenty years old, mm -hmm. when I knew without a doubt that I was gay. But I thought that somehow, by some magic. If I went out with the right girl, it would all go away, and I'd be straight. And and that must have been difficult coming from the background that you come from, uh, the Catholicism and mm -hmm. and all that. And then, yes, you say we're talking about here, you know, sixties, seventies. I mean, it's very different times. And as you said earlier, uh, anyone who is gay or trans today that person becomes the school hero or the class hero and, and and everybody wants to be their friends because they're special. That's right. So we kind of, we went all the way to the other extreme. Yes. Um, and um, 
but how, how then if you date girls when you when you're gay? Yes. How does it then feel to kiss a girl or or, or did you have sex with girls? I never had sex. Mm. I never had sex. I got close, <laughs> but I always slammed on the brakes. Mm. I didn't mind kissing mm. at all. Mm. I thought they were I thought the girls I went out with I thought were beautiful. I I was crazy about them. They mm. were great friends. They were fun to be around. Um, you know, we did uh, we did theater together. We had so much in common. I felt often I felt safer being around them than a lot of the straight guys I went to school with, you know? So it, it, it was great, except when I couldn't put off having sex anymore. Mm. And then it was a problem. Yeah. It kind of caught off with you somehow, or yeah. you, like you were it forced. Did. It did. Um, and were you acting as a kid? I mean, was acting somehow part of, or because you mentioned the board games, and I, I was yeah. kind of... And that board games are also a little bit of a fantasy world, right? It's kind of yes. a... Oh, yes. It's an escape. Yeah. It's, it's, it has a, a similarity to, to, to doing a play. Yeah. It's about escaping into an alternative world where there is order and yeah. justice. And rules. And rules mm. and rewards and fairness that doesn't exist in the real world. But in the world of playing a game mm. or in the world of getting up on stage... You get to live in a better place, mm. sane world. And was there some acting there? You know, like were you? Was there something there in was school? A or a little or bit, a little mm. bit in 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 a little bit in grade school, a little bit in high school, but not until I got to college did I really uh, bloom as an actor mm-hmm. and find out that I had a, I had a really, I was pretty damn good at it. Mm. Um, so, so which you know, which college? Sorry, did you go to Manhattan College uh-huh. uh, in Riverdale, New York? Um, Rudy Giuliani was one of our more famous alumni. Uh-huh. <laughs> but it was a great, great, uh, great little school um, in in New York. It was uh, it was right at the end of uh, the A train, uh, and so it uh, you know it felt like a suburban college, but yet we could walk down the hill, get on the subway, and in twenty minutes be in the in the middle of Manhattan. Uh huh. So. It was it was the best of everything. Uh, were you a good student? Because I mean, it must be difficult to focus when when you have all this stuff going on in your family. Yes. And I was a good I was a good student. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, without really trying, I did not do a lot of studying. Um, it bored me. I was I just. I was smart enough to get by without having to do a lot of work. Mm. And the schools I went to really weren't all that challenging. You know, I didn't go to an Ivy League college. I didn't, I didn't really, I could get by. Mm. I could skate by. And uh, that was just great to me because that just meant more hours that I could d- devote to the theater. Mm-hmm. And, uh, but you studied also at Harvard. Uh, or, or No, no, I worked. No, you worked at yes, Harvard, Harvard yes. Medical um, yes, I spent my adult career in Boston. When my husband and I moved to Boston, we both ended up being Harvard employees. Mm. Um, my husband went into the Harvard library system, uh, the, their art museum system, and I uh, worked at McLean Hospital, which was Harvard University's teaching hospital for psychiatry. Uh-huh. But you, so you marry quite young, right? Well, we couldn't legally marry until oh. I think it was about seventeen years now, when Massachusetts became the first state to legalize gay marriage in mm. the U.S. Mm. That's when we legally married. But you know, we consider ourselves married for forty years now. 
That's a long time. It's a very long time. We've outlived most of our straight friends. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, but how? So what? So when you're twenty, you, or no, yeah, twenty, you you come out. Yes. How was that? How was it to come out and tell everyone? It was good because um, I had a group of. By the time I was a senior in college, um, being pretty much running the theater on campus. Um, the, the, the people who were going to come out started to find each other. And even though we didn't speak it out loud, we knew and we protected and we nurtured one another. And ironically, it was through the campus ministry, because it was a Catholic college, and the campus ministry ran retreats for college students struggling with their sexuality. So irony of ironies, it was the Catholics <laughs> that helped me come out. That's crazy. Because yeah, because you know my friends and I went on these retreats to you know Atlantic City, you know to these wonderful, beautiful retreat houses for a three day weekend and of you know prayer and rap back when people rapped in college. Mm. <laughs> rap had a different meaning back then. Yeah. <laughs> what what did uh, it mean then? It meant talking. Uh-huh. A rap session was uh, people, talk. people sitting around talking. Uh-huh. You know, as opposed to rap music. So wait, so so the Catholics uh, church, or you know, the, the yeah, um, yeah, the minister from from school, this campus, school campus, mm-hmm. were they sending you away so you could discover your sexuality, or they were sending you away to heal your sexuality? No, to discover it. Uh huh. Not to heal us or fix us at all. Okay, that, at all. That's pretty open-minded back then, though. It was extremely open-minded back then. We were really lucky. Uh-huh. Really lucky. I look back, and it, it was kind of a am- kind of amazing uh-huh. that they were a- even able to do that in our conservative Christian atmosphere of the time. Mm. I mean, this is you know, I graduated college in 1976. Uh, it was for you know Reagan years. Yeah, it's very conservative everywhere, and mm. in, in in the Catholic Church, in society, uh, wasn't a great time to to come out. Mm. And what about the family when 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 they found out? It it wasn't so great. They all came to ultimately accept it, but it was not an easy road. Mm. They let me know, each in their own way, that they disapproved mm. and that I was letting them down mm. in some way. But that's weird, you know, like, this shouldn't really matter, you know? like No, of course it shouldn't matter. But they were the product of their generations. Yeah, yeah. When nobody was out, when my parents were growing up, Yeah. Not at all. Yeah, yeah. Because you, yeah, they have you quite old, or like you know, your mom, as you said, she's forty. Yeah, so she, she had is me born 40. in nineteen nineteen seventeen. Yeah, yeah. So that's a whole different thing. I mean, and that's like that's like my granny, and I don't think that. Yeah, I'm not sure my granny could have handled such. You know, if any any of her grandchildren or or right. So it's yeah, it's just a very different generation. Absolutely. But those people had seen it all, though. I mean, they they're born in in First World War, then they live. All That's of right. Second World War and the Great Depression. Yeah, yeah, they lived through it all. Wow, um, that makes people also tough, I think, or like you know what I mean. It, it oh, absolutely, it made them tough. Mm. Uh, it made them smart. Um, it's uh, they were able to be uh, frugal and non-materialistic in a way that generations now will never be able to grasp again. Mm. Because they had to, they lived through the depression, but they didn't stop having babies. They didn't stop raising a family, uh-huh. wanting to own their own home. 
they managed and they and they worked hard and they were immigrants uh, my parents were first generation mm. my grandparents came from italy and from northern ireland mm. um in fact i now have uh, one of the the ways that i was able to transition to europe so easily is i went and got my irish passport uh-huh. through my irish grandparents okay the luck uh, of the irish the luck of the irish so and they all came through ellis island uh-huh in fact um they, they were quarantined there and everything that's right, right? Yeah. that's right that's right they went through ellis island um at the time that uh nelson rockefeller of all people mm. donated a huge sum of money to renovating ellis island and bringing it back as a museum an incredible place mm-hmm. they did a brilliant job of it um my brother paid to have our our grandparents' name engraved in bricks on the walkway around uh the main buildings of Ellis Island so I was able to go and see see their names right it's there It's a crazy time actually th- this time when this is happening because yeah. um, I went to a museum in Iceland there was a big exodus of people around the same time from Iceland they primarily went to the northern states in in you know Minnesota and and yeah. Canada and, and and places like that and when you see this, so these were typically people that were not landowners where they lived, you know, like the right. farmers, they were like the poorest of the poor. Yes. They didn't speak English, German, or any other language. They just spoke their own language, you know, mm-hmm. wherever yeah. they came from. Yeah. And then they go on a boat trip where, you know, it could take weeks. Mm-hmm. And it's not like some luxury cruise. And they had spent all the money to pay for the boat trip. And they had yes. two or three suitcases with them, seven kids, yep. and nothing. Exactly. It's crazy. It is crazy. It makes me very impatient with the insane American immigration policy right now, where Mm. people come from all over the world, pour over the Mexican border, unchecked, Mm. get government benefits, handouts, left and right, um, because that is not how my roots happened here in America. Mm. My grandparents came here to assimilate and become Americans. Mm. I never heard my father speak a word of Italian because his parents... He wanted to be American. He, because his parents wanted him to be an American kid so they mm. didn't teach him Italian at home. They taught him English. I um, don't know. I mean, I, because I, this... I, 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 for me, this is... I mean, obviously, we, we, we know different people and I haven't lived in the U.S. I've been there a lot and I've done a lot of business there and I have friends from there. I always found this kind of fascinating. I... I I had this friend from Pakistan who, who I, well, he became my friend. We did business and he, he came with nothing or his parents came with nothing. But he, every time you asked him, where are you from? American. Yes. I'm American. Absolutely. And the passport was like, I don't know, it was like striking gold, you know, like the, uh, the American passport. Yes. That was the main thing. The Absolutely. guy lived under a fucking bridge for two years. Yeah. Just to become an American. Do you think has that changed? Do you think that I mean? Don't you think it's that completely changed? Uh-huh. Because the, my grandparents came here with no expectations that they were going to get any help whatsoever from the American mm. government. Mm. They lived in the Lower East Side in the worst of the worst tenements, and worked their worked their fingers to the bone as seamstresses, and uh, tailors, and and ladies maids, and you know worked themselves up from nothing, from absolutely nothing, proudly. They didn't want any help. They wanted to make it on their own. Mm. They were too proud also. They were proud. Mm. They were proud. Um, 
it's all gone now. It's all gone. But 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 on the other hand, I mean, like uh, someone who. Well, yeah, there's a lot of people that 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 would disagree with you, and they would say that okay, now the nation is richer. If there is more to share, we could, I don't know, pay more taxes and give more to those people, and 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 give them a a life that is closer to the life that we have. Mm-hmm. Um, why not? Because it does not uh, it does not present people with the notion that what has always made America great is cultures coming together to form a new joint culture made up mm. of all the little pieces. Now people come with a notion of territoriality. You have to provide me with a bilingual education. We have to have our own neighborhood. And this happens in Europe, too. Yeah, this is Scandinavia. You're just talking, like, this is yeah, what is happening in absolutely. Denmark and Norway and Sweden. Uh, and Paris and London, there are neighborhoods mm. that you don't go into mm. uh, if you don't belong to that particular uh, ethnic group. Yeah. Um, this is this is the antithesis of the American way of becoming a, a part of a they great, all of a sweat on culture. the floor together. That's basically right. no matter where the, where you come from, you go through the same process. Yes, yes. Mm-hmm. And I think that you grow up with a different set of values if the government hands you everything when you cross over the border illegally. Mm. You're given health care and a driver's license and um, food stamps. Um, there's, no, there's hardly even any motivation to work, to do any of the hard stuff that is part of coming to America and becoming mm. a responsible, hardworking American citizen mm. with American values. No, now you go in, you keep your own values from wherever it was that you came from, um, and you're, you're under no, 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 no. It's quite the opposite. Uh, as instead of feeling an obligation to be part of the greater American culture, the expectation is that, no, you will recognize my unique and special culture. Mm. But on the other hand, I mean, here we are too, I don't know about you, but I mean, I've, I've been living here in Prague for 13 years. I don't speak Czech. I mean... Yeah, I don't either. Are we, are we? you know, are we expecting... And, and I mean, and then I see a lot of foreigners like us bitch about yeah. it online. Oh, why don't they speak English here and blah, blah, blah. So we... No. I, I I am incredibly grateful that it is possible to get by here as an expat without lear- without knowing Czech. Mm. At least in Prague, it's not. Mm. I don't think it's it's that's different outside the city limits. Mm. Um, but I don't take that for granted, and I never approach a Czech person, saying you know, just walking in speaking English. You know, hey, can you help me? No, 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 no. <laughs> um, I say Dobry den and Louis um, uh, I do not take it for granted. I am polite. And, and also, and, and I get politeness and civility and kindness in return. And you're not asking for any handouts here. No, not at all. Because there are actually there are none. No there are none. Here, yeah. Although healthcare, you know, once I uh, probably the biggest factor that is going to keep me here permanently now um, that I'm about to be 66 is the incredible national healthcare system here in the Czech Republic. Mm. That after five years being here, I was able to be a part of. And now, unlike anywhere in America, I have every cent of my health care paid for, mm. every prescription. Yeah. And I've had two hospitalizations in the past couple of years. Mm. Um, I've had a lot of medical bills, and nothing came out of my pocket. I was mm. completely taken care of. And it's a damn good health care system. Yeah, it is. I, I went to, to the... My girlfriend says that I don't hear anymore, so I went to the ear doctor the other day. Yeah. 
and the doctor started by telling me, well, you're one of those guys that the girlfriend sent them. Okay, that's a very common <laughs> symptom. And uh, and it was, you know, super pro, paid nothing. Yeah. Nothing. Yeah. And and I asked her, shouldn't I pay? And she said, no, 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 here it's free. And I said, yeah, but I'm from Iceland. We are, we are being convinced that it's for free there, but I actually always have to pay. I said, no, no, here it's for free. And it's great service. And, and I feel that healthcare people here, they actually care for you. Yes. They don't want you just to run out and send you home with pills, you know? Exactly. They, they yeah. only let you out when they're 100% sure that you're good. Precisely. Mm. When you get hospitalized in the United States, the, the pressure from, the, from the, the minute you enter, the pressure is on from the insurance companies to get you out the door. Yeah. Um, you know, when you had a baby in America, it used to be you were in the hospital for four or five days until they were absolutely sure that you were good to go home. Now they want to ship you out the next morning with your kid, you mm. know? You don't mm. need to be here. Mm. But uh, both of my hospitalizations uh, here, um, they were in no hurry to let me go. I was asking them to let me go. Yeah. I was like, okay, I'm really good. I can go home now. Mm-hmm. But no, they wanted to make sure that I was 100% able to be home and take care of myself. And it was interesting when, when, when COVID started, then I was looking at, because I'm stupid enough to actually go and deep dive into some data and public data and backwards and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. So I looked at the average stay in a hospital and the Czech Republic was 10 days, I think nine or 10 days per, per admission into a hospital was an average 10 days, not just with COVID, just in general. Yes. Because I just wanted to understand how big is the pressure on the system, how people can it handle and stuff like that. Yeah. So the, the average stay in a hospital here is 10 days in Denmark where they pay up to 60% taxes and they're told everything is great and everything is free. Mm-hmm. It's five days. <laughs> okay, it could be that Danish doctors are just better or the facilities or the equipment or something, but not by half. No. No chance. So the illusion was for me like, okay, so actually they care more here, you know, or like that was my conclusion out of this. And yeah. I also, th- yeah. you know, like they, they keep you as long as they need. Yes, and there are no questions if uh, I- at your job um, if you are a Czech citizen and you need time off for any kind of medical condition. You are not expected to come to, you know, in the United States, unless you are bedridden, if you are coughing and sneezing and hacking with a cold or the flu, you go to work Mm. in the U.S. You don't get a day off unless you absolutely can't drag yourself in. Mm. You know, here in the Czech Republic, stay home. Don't infect us. Don't spread your cold germs around. Stay home. Mm. Here's your pay for the day. You know, go go to bed, relax, feel better, come back tomorrow. It's It's a a completely different culture. But how... How come you come came here? I mean, what 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 brought brought you here? I you know, we were looking. Uh, we, my husband and I um, were kind of, I think, the last of a generation that um, was used to working for one employer for your entire career. That mm. just does not happen anymore, um, because no employers foster that kind of thing. Mm. You know, we caught the tail end of. Uh, corporate entities in America um, wanting to um, nurture their employees and keep them around and value people that had 20 years of service um, for what they were able to teach the new generation of workers coming in. Uh, It's gone now. People work five years, four years at Mm -hmm. one job, switch, go to something else. Mm. Uh, Is that the company's fault or is it that we are constantly looking for... It's the the corporation's fault. They do Mm -hmm. not value the employee the way that they used to. Mm. Uh, that's certainly true in uh, in, in America. Mm. So w- one of the great advantages of staying with one employer 
is that you were able to retire early. Mm. After you had put in so many years of service, you could retire with your full benefits. And for us, that that uh, worked out to be our early 50s. Oh, that's great. And, you know, my husband is a, is a writer. He's a novelist. He wanted to... He wanted to write books. I wanted to do plays. Uh, I was tired of working. So um, we decided we were going to retire, and we knew that we would have to scale back on our expenses because Boston had become just about as expensive as New York to live in. Um, so we would need a new place to stay. And I, by at that point, was completely fed up with American culture. Mm -hmm. I was sick of the anger and the division. This is seven years tension. ago. This is Seven, it's a bit years. longer because no. I, because Prague was not my first stop. Mm -hmm. um, so this is about nine years ago mm -hmm. that we decided to get out. First, we went to Ecuador um, uh -huh. because uh, we heard that there was this amazing expat community. Healthcare was amazing. Um, the thing that they didn't tell us was that the elevation was so high that I couldn't, <laughs> I couldn't breathe. breathe. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so that was a big waste of time. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> then we went to then we went to Malta, and uh -huh. uh, Malta turned out to be the most homophobic place I have ever been to in my They're life. Very very old, school. unbelievable yeah. Malta. I mean, just you, they just recently they recently allowed divorce. Yeah, uh, like because I worked in Malta a lot. Yeah, and I think less than ten years ago, until ten years ago, divorce was illegal. It was illegal. Yeah, they're so old school. Absolutely. Absolutely. But I still love you guys in Malta, those listeners, because they are there. <laughs> yeah, I have, I have a friend or two in, in, in Malta. Um, so, yeah, so we, you know, we, we fled Malta, um, and we ended up, uh, it was, we had, we had planned on spending about 10 days in Malta, and after two days of the horrendous hostile culture, we were like, let's get out of here, but we, where are we going to go to kill some days until our plane ticket back? So we looked up like Ryanair, where's the cheapest place to get to from Malta tomorrow, and it was Bologna. Mm -hmm. And I've loved it. I'm Italian. I've been to Italy many times, but I never really thought that it was a place that I could live. But we, off we went to Bologna and uh, fell in love with Italian culture all over again. And uh, we went exploring, looking for cities, um, not the major cities where we might want to try living, and we discovered Verona. Mm. Um, which uh, was just an amazingly gorgeous city of a, mm. of, a, of a manageable size in the north where things were a little more liberal, an hour from Venice, which is my favorite place on earth. Mm. Um, it seemed ideal. And uh, so we, we moved there and we lasted six months. Okay. Um, what went wrong? The mafia came after us. Uh -huh. <laughs> we had, uh, we, we had an, a beautiful, we got a beautiful, beautiful duplex apartment right near the uh, Colosseum in Verona, just amazing place. And um, there were some serious noise problems um, from our landlord who played piano for six hours a day really, really badly. And to, I guess you were spending a lot of time at home. We so were sp spending yeah, more time at home. Writing oh, yeah, and, yeah. yeah. So it was her, and then there was a Kundalini yoga studio right underneath our window. Uh -huh. <laughs> They'd like to do very loud chanting at dawn. Uh, but the worst was this uh, this hound from hell that was chained up in the back courtyard behind our bedroom window um, that would howl uh, until 3, 4 a.m. In, in, in the morning. Mm. And that is what really drove us insane. And in Verona, you cannot go to the police with a 
noise complaint or any kind of complaint against a neighbor unless you have five signatures. Five neighbors have to come together and complain. So we got that together with no problem because other people in the immediate area of, of our place were also bothered by the dog. So, you know, we gave the police our names and our numbers and our information so that they could officially go and find the owner and see what they could do. And nothing changed for a couple of weeks. And we ran into our landlord and they said, you know, what happened with the police report? The dog's still barking. Mm. And she said, well, the police can't do anything because it's the local Don's dog. So, you know, you can't tell them what to do. Uh-huh. And I'm like, uh, okay, so we've just pissed off the local mafia Don, and he has my name and number and address. Okay. <laughs> on a petition. Yep, on a petition. So literally the next morning we were in Prague mm-hmm. because we had been here eight years prior to that on a vacation and fell in love with the city. Mm-hmm. So immediately, it just occurred to both of us that this was the place to try next. And so we came here mm. and uh, found a place. And, uh, you know, we were ambivalent the first couple of years. We went looking around Ireland, you know, because I thought, ah, I'm Irish, maybe I'd like to live there. Uh, checked out the Netherlands, um, thought about Spain, thought about Portugal. We just didn't feel completely settled here. Mm. But... Um, It takes time here. It takes time. It mm-hmm. takes time. I think once I realized that this was going to be an amazing place to retire, mm-hmm. because uh, to you know to be a senior citizen because of all the, the the benefits I could get from being a permanent resident here, um, and and the expat culture that there was no other city in Europe I could go to where I could start an English speaking theater company. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Mm. You know, can't do that in, in France or Spain or any place else I can think of outside the UK or mm. Ireland. Um, but we ha- we have that here, and 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 a number of them. Um, we have a rich cultural life here that is available to all of us. So, yeah, it's a it's a melting pot here somehow. It's a good, yeah. good. It's a good. It's and and the changes that have happened here over the last few years have been very positive in this sense that it's it's just becoming more and more cosmopolitan and they're going to yes. be I'm pretty sure that if you would have been here 15 years ago you wouldn't have dreamt about doing an American theater here you know but now right. th- there is actually a market for it you know yes um but often like and I mean we touched on a few few of those points you know I feel like uh, and yeah and as I said in the beginning kind of the reason why I wanted to have you here Well, I didn't know all this stuff about you, so I would have wanted you only for that as well. But um, I feel that you express yourself in a very kind of direct way, and 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 a lot of a lot of the stuff that I I saw you write, and I spied a little bit on your Facebook and stuff like that. And I, mm. I liked it when I wrote you. And, Where did you find my name? You said, <laughs> like, and I was like, wow, the guy is paranoid. But you weren't. You were just curious about yeah. how I knew who you yeah. were. Yeah, yeah, and. Uh, But this is what I do. I, I go cold calling. You know, I just reach out to anyone. And I have... A lot of people don't answer me. And they probably think I'm weird. Yeah. But I don't give a shit. Yeah. Because I am weird. Uh, but uh, looking at the U.S. kind of from a distance, which is the luxury that you have when you move away from your home. You know, I moved away from Iceland almost 20 years ago. Yeah. And that country looks very different. And in some way... S- There are things that I miss, but there are things that I'm so fucking happy to be away from. Yeah. How, how is that looking at the U.S. from here? I 
I uh, feel so lucky to be here and away from the U.S. as the American culture crumbles or before my eyes. I'm so relieved not to be in the middle of, of all of that stress and all of that poison. Mm. Um, yeah. In what way? What, what what has gone wrong? I mean, what what? I don't know. What, because you. Yeah, you're born in the 50, 56, so you mm -hmm. you go through this really, really economically positive, culturally positive. You have the hippies. You have, I mean, mm -hmm. there, there are so many positive things happening and technology yes. and stuff like that. Yes, has it gone off the cliff? It has gone off the cliff um, because um, the it, it stopped being a culture. That who's which whose goal was bringing people together and became a culture of dividing everyone, mm. um, and that fed on anger over love, um, and it was what got to me. And what I don't miss is the level of aggression and anger that meets you every step of the way during your daily life. Mm. Um, people, how like uh, example? People well, driving anywhere. Mm. Um, road rage mm -hmm. was rampant in the Boston area. Um, I you had to drive with both hands on the wheel, completely, fully alert at all times, because people were just maniacs on the road. Um, if you weren't, if you did, weren't driving defensively, you were uh, an accident waiting to happen. Um, so, you know, you couldn't drive anywhere and be relaxed. You had to drive full of tension because you had all these assholes on your back everywhere. Mm. Um, people hated their job. People in the service industry were rude and hostile, um, no matter what their job was. Uh, if it was in <laughs> Starbucks, if it was in hospital reception, uh, if it was in the library, it didn't, it didn't matter. This, uh, this notion of... You know, you're paying me mis mis minimal wage, so uh, I can be rude. So I can be rude. Fuck you all. You know, give me more money, and maybe I'll be polite to you. Mm. Um, and uh, I lived in um, a very mi culturally mixed. I lived in Salem, Massachusetts, home of the home of the witch trials. Mm. And you know, we had a black neighborhood, we had a Hispanic neighborhood, uh, and um, Tensions started escalating. Um, I think as as happened in London and in Paris, um, where neighborhoods were becoming more segregated instead of less. Mm. That started to happen in the U.S. But why is that? What tap, what what pushes it in that direction? Because it's kind of as you say. I mean, it's. More segregated than less. Yes, you know, well. because because um, you know th this is this is the the downside of multiculturalism. Mm. Um, it it means everyone embracing their own unique special piece of the culture, and having no need to integrate or to create um, something greater. Mm. Um, so there's no. There's, there's no pressure on people to learn English, to adapt to common values, uh, courtesies, and, uh, mm. you know. Um, 
every every culture just uh, encapsulated itself mm. within most American cities, I think. Um, and it's only becoming more so. Mm. There must be some political thing. or so. do, do you know what I mean? I mean, something enables it or, or, or something. Uh, yes. I'm curious what um, that could be, you know? What, what? Well, I think um, I place a lot of the blame at uh, the, the the far uh, the far left Democrat culture mm. that has reasserted itself uh, in the in the US um, one of the reasons I left um, but you were a Democrat no 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 I grew up in a family of all Republicans but you, you're gay I you're was supposed to be I know I'm supposed to be yeah well fuck that I, mm. <laughs> I didn't pay any attention to those rules mm. Um I became a Democrat when I went to college and in my 20s because that was how it, I mean, you grow up and you, you rebel against what your parents are. Mm. So if my parents were Republicans, my well, rebellion yeah. was to be a Democrat, <laughs> yeah. you know? But uh, I, I let that go pretty early. Once I got into my 30s, I was an independent. I didn't, I didn't uh, affiliate with a party until the first Obama election in which I was made to feel like a racist because I did not support Barack Obama. Mm. Um, and I decided to enroll as a Republican as a big fuck you to all of my friends and family members who gave me shit and made me feel like a second-class citizen mm. because I was not on board with uh, hope and change, mm. the great Obama message. Mm. Why, why um, not? Because there was no plan. Mm. It was hope and change, hope and change. Democrats are really good at sloganeering. You know, what's your policy? And, you know, it's hope and change. Well, what does that mean? What 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 changes are you going to make? What laws? What what's the policy? Mm. Open change. It's you know, and and it's it's still that way. It's it's just it's just these push button slogans. Democrats are great at holding up signs that have slogans on them, or wearing T-shirts that have slogans on them that express their political view. Um, they are the party of blaming other of don't look at me, look at them. Mm. Democrats run on demonizing the other side. You know, Republicans tend to run on policy. And but do you, but m m many, I, I think a lot of people might disagree with this by by saying they, they and they, you know the obvious choice would be to say that Trump uh, was polarizing and he was uh, calling people assholes and saying they're stupid. You, you know what I mean? He used mm -hmm. language that we haven't really seen in politics. And if I right. because I I I, thi I think what if I look at it from from my view because I have the outsider view is that Barack Obama was a much more likable person. As the way that he presented himself and the, the way, way that, that he presented himself, but that's but the that's, that's what most people look right. for. They exactly. don't go be, be exactly. below that, right? So you had this guy who knew how to present himself in this very positive, uh, you know, unifying, uh, charismatic uh, garb mm. um, with very little substance. Um, as opposed to this big, brash, obnoxious guy, Trump, who had a lot of substance, mm. who had a lot of policy like he wanted to change. What, what's the substance? Well, th this this substance is that he didn't he did not want to yield to the globalists, to um, the people that um, sought to um, keep America dependent 
on foreign energy, to keep America perpetually involved in wars around the world. Trump wanted to get out of all of that. He's, mm -hmm. He gave them, he gave the finger to the world leaders and they didn't like it one damn bit. But he was an outsider. I mean, he didn't he was come an outsider. within the system. No, he was a businessman. He didn't come from within the system, which is which is why he was able to why he was able to work it so well because he was used to running corporations. Mm. Obama was a community rabble rouser. I'm sorry, community organizer. Mm. Um, that was that was his experience. Uh, Obama never built uh, a business before. Never managed thousands of people on a payroll. Um, and to, to get to get back to what why it all fell apart with Obama is because I watched racism grow and get worse and worse during the Obama years in the White House to 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 the point where there was more racial tension than at any point since I was a and ever I was going to say since I was a kid, but there was no racial tension in New York when I was a kid. So it was the first time in my adult life that I was acutely aware of people constantly talking about racism. But is that is it possible that uh, that there was no racism when you were a kid because all the people that were marginalized were not asking for anything? Do you know what I mean? That the the minorities or the ones that that are were that we are racist towards or that were being racist towards that they were kind of just kept at bay. But they, but they weren't, mm -hmm. um, especially in in New York. Um, you could, there was nothing stopping you, no matter what your race or ethnicity or religion. There was nothing stopping you from going after the American dream. There mm -hmm. still isn't anything stopping you. Um, you know, it, it, America is not an inherently white, racist, oppressive patriarchy the way the left is trying to paint it as. But That's it's being painted like that by white. People like white mm. Democrats, they oh, by actually, white Democrats, yeah, yeah exactly. exactly. There, there's, there's some sort of a self torture going on there. Yes, it's uh, it, it's it's a lot. It's a lot of uh, virtue signaling. Oh, look at me! I care so much for the underdog. I'm so multicultural. I love everybody. Mm. Um, it's just bullshit. But I, but I, on the other hand, I mean, there are, I'm, and I'm not an expert on American matters or anything like that. But uh, um. A friend of mine is from from uh, North Carolina, mm -hmm. and and I asked him about this. You know, like, uh, did you witness racism? And he said, no, not like it's not like you would see a black kid or a Hispanic kid outside your home and you would scream out the window, you know, run away, you idiot, go out of my neighborhood or anything like. And he said, you know, we right. played together, like you were describing. We had mm -hmm. in the class for kids of all colors and ethnicities and whatever, mm -hmm. blah blah blah. But he, what he told me. Um, what well, was really interesting, he said that, so imagine this, you're like 17, 16 or something, and you get into some trouble. Mm -hmm. And he said, most likely, uh, and you live in, a, let's say, a smaller town or city, most likely the white, there's a white kid and black kid and Hispanic kid, most likely the white kid has some sort of either capital at home, there's, you know, the parents have a credit card or they have, they have something, they can bail him out. They can get him out on bail, for example, you know, I don't know, drinking, right. drunk driving or whatever. Some minor right. demeanor, a minor offense. Um, but the black and the Hispanic kids, there's going to be no dad in the home. Mm -hmm. There's going to be no money, no historical money in the family. Mm -hmm. And he's going to sit there. He's going to spend the night in jail. That's going to go on his criminal record. Mm -hmm. And that's going to be working against that person 
wherever, you know, like applying for a job, uh, going to school, whatever, you know, th- just that tiny little difference of having $300 allowance on the credit card or not. Do, do, do you get what I mean? I do get what you mean. I do. So and this is what people would so call systemic. So why are those black and Hispanic kids getting arrested so much? What's different? I don't know. Maybe they don't have, they don't come from, I don't know, there's not enough money in the family and, to and, pay them better education. And now, or? all the major democratic cities in the U.S. have district attorneys that have been bought and paid for by George Soros and put into position. And But how do we know that? Uh, because it's it's very out in the open. If you look at the ca- the campaign finances of these district attorneys, mm. the money is from George Soros. Yeah, but why wouldn't he? The want, proof why is there. Some, why would some because George Soros is invested in destroying America. For what motives? He is a globalist. He does not want sovereign nations. He wants one global world rule. But the guy uh, is eighty or whatever. You know, he's uh, not like. Yeah. It's not, it's not, I could do this. I'm four, I'm 40 something. I could see, oh, okay, I'm going to unify the world into one power, me, and I'm going to, you know, have all the parties in the world and I'm going to enjoy the spoils. Right. What's the motive of an. Of an it's what keeps him alive. It's what <laughs> these, these people like Soros and mm. Bill Gates and Klaus Schwab, they are, they're essentially, they're, they're vampires. Mm. And the blood that they feast on is fear and division. Mm. That's their blood. But I truly believe that. I think the, these people, George Soros is demonic as far as I'm concerned. Yeah, they use him as a scapegoat in, in Hungary for, for a lot of things. I know that. And I mean, he has shown it, though. I mean, he has a history of attacking. He, he, he uh, devalued the, the British pound. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's very much out in the open. So he has proven, or he has a history of going against against nations and their interests. But I'm just, I don't know. I, I don't want to believe that there is, that this evil p- exists. Mm-hmm. Because this is evil. Yeah. Well, if you believe that goodness exists, then, then evil you, must exist then as evil well. evil must exist You learned that well. in the Catholic mm-hmm. yeah. upbringing. Yes, I did. But if you have angels, you have demons. But do these guys? I mean, so okay. So you said it started with with uh, Obama. It started kind of. You felt that this division started there. Yes. Yes. Absolutely. And I guess, I guess then it got worse with Trump. No, because if you look at the uh, the breakdown of election numbers for the twenty twenty election, um, Trump got a hell of a lot higher a percentage of black and Hispanic votes than uh, most Democrat candidates did. Mm. Um, Because those communities realized that, yeah, okay, wow, we got the first black president in the White House. What did we get for it? How is our life any better? In in point of fact, their life was worse Mm. under Obama. Uh, By which indicators? I mean, what do do you know? I mean, I don't know. Was there a... More homeless or less employment? I mean, yes, absolutely. Mm. More homelessness, uh, more un- more unemployment, mm. more people in jail. Mm. Um, you know, you brought up the issue of uh, people not being able to afford bail. So uh, 
we were circling around this with George Soros getting these district attorneys into office. Yeah, 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 and, yeah, and yeah. The, we were kind yeah. of were, yeah, we were at the, at so the systematic the, the, racism yes, of keeping yes. black people away right. from so, forcing. So they, they've leveled the playing field now. These district attorneys in in uh, Democrat American cities have done away with uh, bail. Mm. So now that that's an equal that's been equalized now. You know, nobody has to put up bail. People go in and they're put right back out on the streets. And so what has this wrought mm -hmm. over the past, uh, uh, well, especially over the past year, that crime has exploded in double digits, but only in Democrat-run cities mm -hmm. where criminals are put right back out on the street. Mm -hmm. And you have places like San Francisco where the cops won't even, will not arrest you if you steal less than $999 worth of goods. Mm. So you have these you have these shoplifting sprees going on in LA and San Francisco mm. where these gangs, you know, it's yeah, like I've seen the videos, like, but they're all wearing like a mask. Flash mobs. They're all wearing a mask. Oh, of course they're masks. They're safe. Yes. Oh, they're safe. They're mm. safe from COVID. God bless them. They're so mm. safe. But but um, but on the other hand, I mean like if you if you if you look at if you go back to that Example that I took of of the the three kids taken in you know arrested for some minor thing, I mean that can happen. I mean we've all told, done something. I've been arrested. I spent the night in jail, and I learned from it. Mm -hmm. uh, there is obviously there some sort of a, a difference of position, you know, like how to deal with that situation, and mm -hmm. and not only does one or two of the kids out of those three have to spend the night in jail, and and but they also get it on the crime record, and it stays with them forever. That's going to kind of keep them back. It means that yes. they can earn less than all that. Mm -hmm. Another thing that I've heard also, which I don't know if it's true, but <clears throat> for me it doesn't make a lot of sense, uh, that the schools are financed by the real estate taxes in the area where the school is. Correct. I don't know if that's everywhere or it's just in certain states. As far as I know, it's everywhere. Yeah. For me, that, that doesn't make a lot of sense because then you're kind of bound to have poor schools and rich schools. Yes, absolutely. And th this for me is a policy where you obviously, if you have um, someone who, I don't know, comes from a... Because I come from a country where I, I went to... I'm from a poor family and like just working class people, but I studied next to sons of doctors and lawyers and ambassadors and stuff like that. Like yes. there were rich people in my class but we, yes. it didn't feel like that. I understand. Yeah, this is a problem, right? Oh, it's a tremendous problem. But it doesn't. The, the American education system has is, is fallen apart. It's it's a degree from an American university is not worth anything near what a degree from a European or an Asian university is any longer. Mm. It's uh, and it starts it starts from from the bottom. It starts from. Uh, you know, you know. Okay, so we want to improve education for, uh, let's say, black and Hispanic students. Mm -hmm. So, what do we do? We um, redo the testing. We um, throw out the grading system so nobody fails. Um, everyone gets pushed along. People graduate with appalling reading levels, terrible math skills. Um, because we've, you know, we've leveled the playing field so that there's no uh, inherent prejudice in the education system. And what do you get? You get people that have, do not know critical thinking, cannot hold a job, have no social skills, 
the American education system has completely failed them. Mm. And so then, okay, so what's the alternative? Well, I'll go to some terrific university where, you know, I, I'll get out and people will hand me a job because I went to Stanford or Princeton or Yale or Harvard. Um, but I'll be in debt for the rest of my life because it's going to cost me $100,000 a year to do that. And um, what I can tell you from spending my career affiliated with Harvard University, it, 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 it no longer does that. 50% of Harvard's graduating class the year that I left Boston was unemployed. Mm -hmm. 50% of these people who were paying hundreds of thousands of dollars for their Harvard education mm -hmm. couldn't get a damn job. That's crazy. And I, I think, <clears throat> I mean, but the university or, or college and universities has been, it's, it's, I mean, it, in the U.S. it's always been a business, but now it's just become a big business. Yes. And so, so if you imagine you can't, this, this must be dreams for them that there are no grades, no evaluations, so they can just sell a lot of people. It's, it's a win-win for everyone except the students. So, yes. so think about this. You go and take, you pay, I don't know, probably uh, $100,000, $200,000 per semester or whatever, you know, mm -hmm. uh, and then you have to take a loan for that, so somebody's charging interest on that. And then you probably have to rent on the campus or something like that. So somebody gets money for that. Mm -hmm. And the, uh, the after, and then you go out, you made the school rich, you made the loan company rich, and then you're not necessarily qualified because you probably should never have been to school. Exactly. You should have, you should have found a different job or you should have done something else. Yes. But you've been sold the illusion that you could become something great. Mm -hmm. And then you're unemployed. And the problem is that the people who get into this position, I think it's super, super difficult for any anyone, politician or anyone, no one's going to turn around and tell them, listen, you made a mistake. We don't. There will never be a job for you. You're not clever enough or you're not hardworking enough. Right, right. So we have a bunch of people out there with unrealistic ideas about what they can. Mm -hmm. And then... Yes. And uh, it's... Um the problem compounds itself because education, higher education in, in America now is liberal education. I mean, they used to call it liberal arts degrees. Mm. <laughs> you know, now it is literal liberal degrees um, because campuses are 95% Democrats, liberal Democrats teaching but their they, you agenda. But you were a Democrat in, in, in college, right? Yes, I was. I was. So, but it was a conservative Catholic college. Mm. So... It was balanced in that sense. Um, now it's not balanced at all. So the American education system is a factory for producing more Democrats. Um, but hasn't it always been? No, I don't think so. Mm. No, no. Where did all the brilliant Republicans come from in American I don't know. history? I don't know. Maybe they're, they're self-made or something. I don't know. Yeah, I mean, one of the great uh, one of the great life experiences of going to university in America used to be. Um, the process of uh, learning uh, civil debate um, and um, how to think critically and how to disagree with your peers in a civilized manner and to, you know, meet in the middle, come to some kind of agreement um, for both sides. That's gone. It's just completely polarized now. Mm -hmm. Aren't you just an old guy blaming, telling us that you young people are <laughs> fucking it up? 
Uh, I don't think so. I'm still pretty young at heart, yeah. and um, I work with a lot of young people. I work mm. with young actors. I surround myself with young people. I, most of my friends are far younger than I am. Mm. Um, and I see what's happening to them. And um, Nah, I don't think I'm some old fart. I mean, yeah, I am an old fart, but... <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, but it's... Um, um, I, I mean, I often thought about this um, American dream, like... Uh, when I heard my American friends, I mean, it was really an interesting eye-opener for me when I moved here to Prague. I, I started to know more Americans than I knew in Iceland and in Denmark, where I lived before. There were just the expats. There were not as many expats there. So, and then I started asking those guys, like, so what is it about Prague? You know, I said, oh, it's real freedom. It's 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 really like a, here's real freedom, and there's you know public holidays, and there are vacations and you can get five weeks off in the summer and, yes. and, and, and paid holiday and mm -hmm. three years of maternity leave, which I think personally is crazy, but whatever, it's for its own. And uh, um, and then I started asking, but how was it in the States? And yeah, well, my parents had seven days off. My dad went to work at six in the morning, came up home at eight o'clock in the evening. And then mm -hmm. and I said, okay, and how, how, yeah, we had a house, we had two cars, and the weekends they spent driving us around to, you know, play soccer or whatever it is that the kids did. Right. And then I thought, okay, no wonder that Americans don't read books. They had, they just don't have time. They don't have the time. So it's the, true. And, and you make sure they don't have public transportation. So you keep them in the car. So they, first of all, have to spend money on cars. Mm -hmm. Secondly, on fuel. And then they're driving so they can't listen to anything. So the podcast, you know, a podcast must have been a perfect product into the American culture. The, you know, that they can listen in the car. And then they get no days off. And I actually read it. 70% of Americans don't read one book after graduation. It's true. Not one fucking book, not even the phone book. Yeah. And then I, I thought, okay, so this is really clever because they just keep them in the, what, what is it called, in the rat, like the... The the the, 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 the rat wheel. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So they keep them there and they... they they convince them that they are the greatest nation on earth and everything is perfect here. Mm -hmm. Just pay more, spend more, ignore everything from the outset. We're the greatest country on earth. Mm -hmm. And it actually isn't. No, it's not. Mm -hmm. It's not. I, you know, and the mask is falling. You know, I, I don't, you know, it's interesting when uh, things get hot politically in the U.S., like uh, before the 2020 election, uh, a lot of Czech people will um, assume that I'm an American and will want to know where I stand and what I think about it all. And more and more, my answer to them is, I'm Irish. <laughs> Don't blame me. Mm. <laughs> not, mm. my, not my country. Mm. I have Irish passport. Me, EU citizen. Mm. <laughs> no American here. Mm. You know, I really, I don't, I don't know. It's very, it's very odd not, not to really identify as American any longer, to really reject the whole thing. But, but it's... I guess, like, um, um, I mean, we're, we're looking at 10, 15 years of humongous changes in society. I mean, like, from a technical point of view. And I remember there was some year, um, I don't remember, it was Time magazine, they they voted the, the man of the year or the person of the year was you. Mm -hmm. That was the front page. Yeah. And I remember when I, when I saw it, I was like, yeah, that's really cool, you know, because social media, everybody had a voice, you know, everybody mm -hmm. had a chance to, get out somewhere with something yep. um, but it also meant that you had access to um, seeing how other people lived 
seeing what they're saying, mm-hmm. um, I I now know what Britney Spears ate for breakfast. <laughs> I never knew that, you know, 15 years ago, you know? Mm-hmm. And <clears throat> I could imagine if I would have been younger when this started, you know, because, you know, back in those days you could see, I don't know, something about the Rolling Stones once a month in the local newspaper, you know? I can imagine that seeing all this and having this just one click away on your phone, um, it can create some unrealistic expectations of how life should be. And then if you then take an add on it that you actually start socializing on those social networks with only like-minded people, then you also kind of isolate yourself from, oh, the, yes. from the other opinions. And then the algorithms of those social media give you more and more feed of the private little community that you've encapsulated yourself in. Mm-hmm. Um, but th- So I'm thinking that because that creates division. Of course it does. And everything you look at now from the States, if you look at the, there's no center anymore. It's Everything is either right or left. That's right. That's right. There is no center. And a lot of people somehow, I don't know, living in under the illusion that that they should have a better life, but they're not ready to work for it, maybe, or, 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 or I don't know, or somebody else should hand it to them. Entitlement, because entitlement comes with being special, right? Entitlement comes with being special, exactly. Um, and the the next level of all of this uh, creating your own little artificial universe uh, in social media, and uh, that becomes your circle of friends, um, the people who, who give you likes <laughs> on Facebook. Um, the next step is Mark Zuckerberg has changed Facebook to Meta. Mm. The next step is the Metaverse, mm. where we all have our little headsets on and we're all in our uni- little universe and have no need whatsoever for social interaction any longer. Mm. Yeah, and this is the end of part one. Uh, part two will be out in a couple of days. And uh, yeah, there we talk more about uh, censorship, COVID, global warming, uh, trust the science. The division between people and uh, yeah, check that out. It will be out in in uh, yeah two three days or something. Right.